Let's take our Bibles and turn once again to the little epistle of Philemon. Uh, We commenced to look at this epistle a couple of weeks ago, and we said some things at that particular time about the epistle. It is a short letter. Obviously, it is short. It's only one chapter. So you can't say Philemon chapter 3 because there is only one chapter. But it's a chapter that's filled with a lot of material that's beneficial to the Lord's people. It was written, of course, as a personal letter. I don't think that Philemon ever imagined that this letter would become public, that it would become part of the canon of Scripture, that the content would minister to God's people in generations thereafter. I don't think he had any knowledge of that at all. This was a personal word written by the Apostle Paul from prison. And of course, it is something that was written with no thought of its ever being preserved as such. When he wrote it, Paul had no idea, I I believe, that it would find a place in the writings that would become the scriptures of the Christian church. I may be wrong, but I don't have any reason to believe that Paul felt that this was going to be part of the canon of scripture eventually, but it is. The occasion that called forth this letter was Paul's wish to plead with a certain man, a friend of his called Philemon in Colossae, and it was on behalf of a runaway slave called Onesimus. And let me just say that Philemon is not mentioned in any other place in the New Testament, but Onesimus is. He's referred to in the letter to the Colossians as coming from Colossae, and we read Colossians chapter 4 tonight, part of it, and in verse 9, that's made clear. Also, we read about Archippus. He's mentioned in the greetings of this letter to Philemon, and he is also given a special charge in the letter to the Colossians in chapter 4, verse 17. He's to keep on with the charge that he's been given, preaching the word. And of course, then, we should notice that there are five Christians that are mentioned besides these. Epaphras, Mark or Marcus, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, sometimes called Lucas, who send greetings to Philemon. And they're also mentioned at the close of the letter to the Colossians. So when we put this all together, the two letters were probably written at the same time. One is a public letter to the church, actually to three churches, Colossae, Laodicea, and Hierapolis. The other is a private letter, a personal letter to Philemon. We've noted that Paul was a prisoner as he wrote that letter to Philemon. He says this at the beginning of the epistle, Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ. He was in prison for Jesus Christ. He was suffering the consequences of being a faithful preacher of the Word. Now, while some students would associate the letters to the Colossians and Philemon, and also, in fact, Philippians, with an imprisonment that Paul might have had at Ephesus, the general consensus is that these letters should be placed in the first Roman imprisonment. Therefore, that would date them somewhere around A.D. 62 or 
3, a little more than 10 years after the letters to the Thessalonians. The letter to Philemon is a very revealing document. The careful study of this book leads us to create or to recreate the story of Paul's conversion of Philemon, probably during his ministry in Ephesus. Philemon was won to Christ through the man of God. And we can see from this letter in our imagination that meeting of Paul and Onesimus, the runaway slave, probably at Rome, something that resulted in the conversion of Onesimus and led to his decision to return to his master. The letter, of course, as we said at the very beginning, shows light, sheds light on the character of Paul. It shows his wisdom. It shows his tact in dealing with difficult situations. It shows the art of communication that he enjoyed. He was a very wise preacher and a man who used arguments with Philemon, which were compelling. He was all the time seeking to lead Philemon to understand that what he was asking for was not unreasonable, but actually was in keeping with the, the spirit of the gospel. It's interesting that Paul is a man who could write massive polemical writings like the epistle to the Romans, but he could also write a very personable letter to an individual. Paul was a man of many gifts, and some of those gifts are displayed here in this epistle. The letter is precisely what it claims to be. It's a short letter from Paul to a man who was a wealthy slave owner at Colossae. But the thing is, he was a Christian. Unlike many who would have kept slaves, Philemon knew the Lord. And his hospitality was such that he put his house, his home, at the Lord's disposal. He opened his doors to the Christians in that locality because every Sunday there was a fellowship of believers gathering in his house for worship. And Paul referred to the church in thy house in verse 2 of the epistle. In Philemon's house, there would have been prayer, the reading of the Scriptures, the exposition of the Scriptures, and the Lord's Supper, and Christian baptism. All of those things would have taken place in his home. Now, we should understand that in a secondary way, the letter was written also to Aphia and Archippus. Commentators believe that Aphia, it's a woman's name, it was probably Philemon's wife. And then Archippus was a person who, we speculate, was the son of Philemon and Aphia. That's what many commentators believe. But he had been entrusted with a responsibility to run the affairs of the church in the absence of Epaphras. He's mentioned in verse 24 uh, of the portion that we read earlier in Colossians. But his, uh, let me see, in verse 24 of, of Philemon, you'll see that as well as Marcus and Demas and Lucas, his fellow laborers, he includes Aristarchus. And Aristarchus is mentioned also in Colossians. 
Epaphras was a faithful preacher. Colossians chapter 1 verse 7 makes it clear that he had been instrumental in founding that church at Colossae. And that Archippus was now active in the service of the Lord fits Colossians 4 and verse 17 very well. Because it is there that it says, Say to Archippus, Take heed to the ministry which thou hast received in the Lord, that thou fulfill it. Carry it out to the letter. Finish off your ministry, Archippus. These terms that are used to describe all of these people, both individually and collectively, are interesting. I want us just to look at some of these to begin with tonight as we have an introduction to this epistle. Notice, first of all, there's one who is to be referred to as the brother. The brother. Timothy. And of course, along with that, you have Aphia, our sister. Verse 1, Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ, and Timothy, our brother. Then verse 2, and to our beloved Aphia. So here you have a brother, and indeed a sister. These are family terms. We use them all the time, literally, in our homes. We speak of the brother, we speak of the sister. But this is something that can be applied as well in the Christian church. Christians are part of a family. Let us never forget that. We're part of the family of God. And that's why we say when we meet another believer, hello brother, or hello sister. This is the kind of language that we use because even though we may have no connection with that person biologically, we have a very real connection with them spiritually. Brothers and sisters in the Lord. Someone said the spiritual blood tie of Christians, the bond of being redeemed by the blood of Christ is stronger than even a natural blood tie. You've heard the saying, blood runs thicker than water. And people often manifest that when they may have a disagreement with a brother or sister. But when somebody else, a third party, comes in to express disagreement with the brother or sister, we go to bat for them because blood is thicker than water. We have that fellow feeling. After all, our brother is our brother. Our sister is our sister. And you better not dare touch them, because when you touch them, you touch me. That's the attitude. When I was growing up with two older sisters, I know I gave them a hard time. And they gave me a hard time sometimes. But well dare anybody else come in as a third party to do any harm to me. My two big sisters would have dealt with them. And similarly, if something was happening with my sisters, if somebody was doing something to them, I would go to bat for them. Because that's the way it is in families. That's how it ought to be. Is it like that with the family of God? A family that transcends race and nationality. Christians are brothers and sisters, and we need to show that forth in the way that we treat one another. We ought to have a loving relationship with one another in the church. 
The Bible says, weep with those that weep, rejoice with those that rejoice. There should be a fellow feeling between Christians. Something bad happens to another believer. You should be right there seeking to support that brother or that sister. Because that's what families do. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. We know God as our Father through the Lord Jesus. We have been adopted. You know that doctrine of adoption? It's a beautiful doctrine, beautiful truth. It's one of the ways in which the Bible describes our salvation. The Shorter Catechism puts it like this in question 34. What is adoption? Adoption is an act of God's free grace, whereby we are received into the number and have a right to all the privileges of the sons of God. We have the privilege of being a child of God and everything that comes with that. God is our Father. Jesus Christ is our elder brother. We're all united to other Christians with ties that cannot be destroyed. Blessed be the tie that binds our hearts in Christian love. The fellowship of kindred minds is like to that above. The story is told of the author of that hymn. He was a preacher, and he felt that the Lord wanted him to move away somewhere else to take a call to another place. He packed all his belongings along with his family. They headed out of the village or the town where they lived with all this stuff on a cart. And when he saw the people of God from his church gathered, all weeping profusely, crying because they're going to lose their minister and family, the Lord seemed to say to him, don't leave stay. And he stayed. And it was that man who wrote, blessed be the tie that binds our hearts in Christian love. The fellowship of kindred minds is like to that above, just like what happens in heaven, in a more imperfect way. But the Bible talks about the whole family, part of which is in heaven and part of which is on the earth. Let me read this to you from Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14 and 15 of Ephesians 3. For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom, notice it, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. That doesn't say two families. A heavenly family and an earthly family. No, it's the whole family in heaven and earth. Part of the family has gone ahead. Part of the family remains, but we're all part of the one family. Loved by Christ and loving Christ for all eternity. So there's the brother. That's the first term that's used to describe Timothy and, by extension, Aphia, who is not a brother but a sister. Same idea in the family. Secondly, notice the beloved. The letter is written, this letter to Philemon, written to an individual, yes, Philemon. Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ, and Timothy, our brother, unto Philemon, our daily, our dearly beloved and fellow laborer. Our dearly beloved and fellow laborer. There is a bond of unity 
It's family love between Christians. And when we get saved, we experience that. There is that bond that ties us together or that glue that joins us together, that adheres us to other believers. It is Christ himself. Philemon was one who was loved. But he was also, he was also a fellow laborer. He was a beloved fellow laborer. Biblical Christianity doesn't know anything about individualism. That is to say, people being isolated one from another and working for the Lord. The Bible doesn't teach that we're all just to do our own thing. The Bible teaches that the church is a body. We are joined one to another. And it is important that we recognize that. That we love the body. That we love the church. Christ loved the church. And so to talk about a solitary Christian is a contradiction in terms. And it's a denial of the great truth of the body of Christ. Someone told the story of someone who was invited into someone's home and they were sitting in front of a fire and all the coals were burning together in the hearth. And the one man was seeking to illustrate to the other man who had been missing from church for a long time the importance of fellowship within the church. And so as they're talking together, he reached forward for a pair of tongs and he lifted one of those hot coals out of the fire and he set it on the front of the hearth. Within seconds, that redness in the coal had become dark. And of course, after a minute or two, that coal could be touched by his hand. And he did that and he lifted it and he held it in his hand. He said, just a few minutes ago, that coal was burning along with the other coals in that fire. Now we've taken it out from the rest of the coals. We've put it on its own. And what has happened to it? All the heat has gone out of it. It's been isolated from the other coals and there's no heat, there's no warmth in it. He said, brother, that's you when you miss church. That's you when you miss the house of God. That's you when you stay away from the body. It's so important. We show forth our love for the body of Christ by being part of it. Now notice that Philemon has gone down in history as a laborer. In my part of the world, they talk about people being loafers. That means that they don't do anything. They just don't work. They're loafers. God doesn't want us to be loafers. He wants us to be laborers. And when Paul describes Philemon, he describes him as a beloved worker, a beloved laborer. Our dearly beloved and fellow laborer, a worker in the kingdom of God, a man who testified to the gospel by lip and by life. Remember that we are workers together with God. Turn back in your Bible to 2 Corinthians, to the chapter 6 and verse 1. Notice this. We then, as workers together with him, are you a worker? Are we workers? Or are we like bumps on a log that just don't do anything for the Lord? 
We then as workers together with him. Sometimes in your place of employment, there are people and they get the reputation for being shirkers. If they can get out of something, they'll get out of it. If they can avoid working, they'll do it. Others will get the reputation for being a very solid and good worker. That's the kind of person that is a dream for an employer. He's a worker. He doesn't even have to be told to do things. He has initiative. He'll do it by his own steam because he's a worker. It's part of what he is and who he is. That's the way we should be in regard to the things of God. We are workers. Again, that's something that Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians in chapter 3 and verse 9. For we are laborers together with God. Imagine being in the same yoke as the Lord, working for him, working with him. And God does use earthly workers to accomplish his eternal purpose. The Lord could just do everything himself. He wouldn't need to call men to preach. He wouldn't need to have Christians to do anything. Just do it all himself. But he has chosen not to do that. Remember those words? As the Father hath sent me, so send I you. The Lord gave the disciples a work to do. He didn't just say, well, I'm going to do it all. No, he said, I'm going to delegate work to you. That's what God still does. And many of us may not have the means that Philemon had at his disposal, but we can be fellow workers and consecrate who we are and what we are and what we have to God. There's a little hymn that says, there's a work for Jesus ready at your hand. Tis a task the master just for you has planned. Haste to do his bidding. Yield him service true. There's a work for Jesus none but you can do. There's something that God has for you to do that nobody else can do. You are to be a fellow laborer. May we be those beloved laborers. But as well as the brother and the beloved, there's someone who I would describe here as the battler. The battler. One who was involved in the battle. One who was going to war for the Lord. Look at what it says here in Philemon about Archippus. Verse 2. And to our beloved Aphia and Archippus, our fellow soldier. Our fellow soldier. One who is in the battle. He changes the analogy there. But this is an important thing for us to recognize. But the change of the metaphor, it's just something that is using to emphasize one is a laborer, another is a soldier, but it's the same thing. We're involved in the work of God. We're involved in the war for God. The metaphor here is a military one. Archippus is our fellow soldier. He's a battler. The Christian life, one preacher said, it's not a playground. It's a battleground. We're at war with the world. We're at war with the flesh. We're at war with the devil. And we are to be battlers for God. Christianity involves warfare. Fight the good fight of faith. Remember what Paul wrote to the Ephesians? Put on the whole armor 
of God. You're in a fight. You're in a battle. We're not wrestling against mere principalities or, or, or against mere flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this present world, spiritual wickedness, or wicked spirits, you could say, in high or heavenly places. When you pray for souls, you're involved in spiritual battle. When you get on your knees, you're involved in warfare. We are to be warriors for God, and that's why people are often described as prayer warriors. Because they're battling on their knees. You know, it's a fight, it's a battle even to get on your knees sometimes, isn't it? It's a real battle. There's 101 other things we'd rather do rather than stop and have a time of prayer. We'd rather sit down and listen to music or even listen to a sermon than spend time in prayer. I know because I have that experience. The devil doesn't like it when you get on your knees. One of the hymns says that Satan trembles when he sees the weakest saint upon his knees. I'm not so sure about whether he trembles or not. I think he he just redoubles his efforts to try to stop that saint from praying. He fights them. He battles against them. Are we involved in the battle? Now the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. One of the hymns that we often sing is Onward Christian Soldiers Marching as to War Looking unto Jesus who has gone before We often sing Fight the good fight of faith We often sing About putting the armour on As a soldier of the Lord We often sing Stand up, stand up for Jesus Ye soldiers of the cross Lift high his royal banner It must not suffer loss From victory unto victory His army shall he lead till every foe is vanquished and Christ is Lord indeed. If you're a Christian, you're involved or you should be involved in battle. You should be like Archippus, a battler for God. You're involved in battle with evil forces when you try to witness to somebody about the Lord. You know how that is. It's so easy to talk about something else. Oh, the weather. That's always a great topic of conversation, isn't it? The weather. Or some event taking place in the news. Something that's current affairs. Politics. Now there's something to talk about. But how often do we take the opportunity to talk to people about the Lord? See, the devil opposes that. He'll let you talk about politics and the weather and sport and a hundred other things. As much as you want to, the devil will allow you to do that. But once you start trying to talk to somebody about Christ, that's when the battle starts. You know how that is. Afraid to speak to this one because mm, I'm, I'm afraid of how they'll react. They're not going to like it when I bring that up about the Lord. It'll start to make fun of me or whatever it may be. We're in a battle. And we need the Lord to help us to put the armor on. But as well as these three that I've just mentioned, there's a fourth thing that's mentioned here. And obviously, there's the individuals that we've been talking about, but now we're thinking more of the collective 
body or church. This is not so much personal as it is collective in the church. Philemon, verse 2, to our beloved Aphia and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in thy house. They met there in that building in his home. That was something that was common in those days before the advent of church buildings and buildings set apart for the purpose of worship alone. God's people felt the need to meet somewhere. So they did meet. And in Colossae, they met in the home of Philemon. And so we can talk about the building. When I say the building, I don't mean the physical structure. Isn't it interesting how through the years the word church has become identified with bricks and mortar and stained glass windows and buildings? People say, well, there's, there's such and such a church. What they mean is the church building. But we know that the Bible teaches that the church of Jesus Christ, in a local sense and even a, in a broad sense, is not referring to a building of bricks and mortar. It's not talking about wood or stone. It's talking about people. But those people who are described as the church, the called out ones, are also called by the Lord his building. There's a building that God is establishing. And it's not a building of bricks and mortar. It's a building of living stones, people. Look at Ephesians. And we read there in chapter 2. Toward the end of that, it says in verse 19, Now therefore you are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. Basically, it's a family. And are built upon, see that? Are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together, groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. So it's right and proper to talk about the church as a building. Not the church building, but the church as a building. We're the Lord's building. I will build my church. Jesus didn't mean they were going to go out and get a bunch of wood and bricks and build an actual building. No, he's talking spiritually. I will be building my church. It's composed of people. The New Testament church is primarily a people. Living stones, they're called, built into a spiritual house. 1 Peter 2 verse 5. Bricks and mortar are lifeless things. And while we're very thankful for our bricks and mortar and our stained glass windows, at least I am, I love this little church. However, even if we didn't have this physical building, we would still have a church. I've often read of the Covenanters of Scotland and many of them, and in the days of persecution, people at the time of the Puritans in England, they were turned out of their church buildings. They had to leave their buildings because of persecution. And so they met in the fields. 
And they met under cover of forests and trees. They could meet, they met, they met anywhere that they could. Did they cease to be a church because they weren't in buildings? Because the actual stone buildings were closed off to them? Did they not have church? Of course they had church. Because the people are the church. And yes, it's right, it's right and it's proper to have a building, I believe, that's set apart exclusively for divine worship and the preaching of the gospel. We should remind ourselves that no such buildings were legal until the 4th century A.D. The lack of consecrated buildings, so-called, did not hinder the spread of the gospel. And some of the greatest and mightiest works that were done in church history were done not in church buildings, but in church yards, in graveyards, and in fields. In the conventicles of Scotland, People met in their thousands without the cover of any natural cover. But the Lord built his church. So in the New Testament, the word church refers to the believing Christian community. It refers to the gathering together of those who have been saved by God's grace. The church is a people whom God has chosen out of lost humanity. And he becomes their God and they become his people. And what a people form the church. They're described in different ways. They're described as God's elect. They're described as his people whom he foreknew. They're described as his sheep. They're described as those that are chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. They're described as his people. Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. That's the church. They're the people for whom Christ died. They're the ones that he came to save. They're the ones to whom God, by the Spirit, applies the finished work of the Lord Jesus and enables them to take to themselves all the blessings of his salvation. The church, God's redeemed ones, God's special people. The church in thy house. No matter where on earth we dwell, on mansion top or in the dell, in cottage or in mansion fair, where Jesus is, tis heaven there. That's the great thing about the church of Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter about the surroundings that you meet in. If Christ is in the midst. When Christ is in the midst of his people, there's blessing to be had there. And so we thank the Lord that we're part of the church. And I trust that all who hear my voice tonight that you are part of the church, the building that he is building. I trust that you're one of the living stones and he is placed into that great edifice that he's putting together. This is merely the introduction to Philemon. But uh, I trust the Lord will bless what we've had to say about these opening couple of verses. We thank the Lord for those who are brothers and sisters in Christ. 
We should thank the Lord for those who can be described as beloved, for those who can be described as battlers in the work. And we should thank the Lord for the building that he is erecting, the church which Jesus said he would be building and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. You know, the the church has a future. A lot of people are very pessimistic about the future of God's church, but I tell you, God will always have a church and God will bless the church and God will build his church. So let us be faithful in prayer. Let us be faithful in preaching and let us look to the Lord who alone can build his church.